Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. On this weekend, given over to the legacy of Martin Luther King, I find myself reflecting on two interrelated dimensions of his lifetime achievements. The first is brevity. Felled by the bullet of an assassin on a Memphis balcony, in 1968, King's life was cut tragically short at the age of 39. Considering the enduring role of King's presence in shaping our national self-image, discourse, and priorities, it's nothing short of remarkable to note that his life ended at what most of us would consider young, the best years yet ahead of him. In remembering King, we're confronted with a throbbing, what if? What if King had been granted length of years? In those final years, King's agenda had begun to pivot beyond civil rights and into the anti-war movement and addressing the systemic ills of economic inequality. In the year prior to his death, he had delivered a fiery and very controversial speech against Vietnam at Riverside Church. He was in Memphis on that fateful April day to support the rights of striking garbage men. Had he have lived, who knows what impact King would have had. He may have entered politics. He may have become a polarizing figure. He may have leveraged his stature to train the next generation of leaders. He may have done all sorts of things. But martyred at 39, we'll never know. The second and somewhat connected dimension of King's life upon which I found myself reflecting was its intensity. Just a dozen years, that's it. From the bus boycott in Montgomery in 56 to his death in Memphis in 68. In just two years, King went from receiving his doctorate in systematic theology to being on the cover of Time magazine, going on to meet Eisenhower, Kennedy, and a host of world leaders from Montgomery to Birmingham to Washington in 63 to receiving the Nobel Peace Prize in 64, the sit-ins of Freedom Rides, Bloody Sunday, all of it, and so much more happened in less time, well, than I've been a rabbi here at Park Avenue. The clustered intensity of King's public ministry is altogether remarkable. King's legacy is worthy of reflection this weekend and every weekend for the substance of his efforts, for the moral clarity of his voice and vision, for the movement he set in motion, and yes, for the journey still yet to be traveled. But it's the brevity and intensity of King's achievements, how much he accomplished in short time, that's also instructive and inspirational, a case study in the impact an individual can have at any point in life, like Theodore Herzl, who over the course of 10 years from Dreyfus to his death, gave voice to political Zionism, like Sylvia Plath, 
who forever changed the American literary canon by the age of 30, King's legacy prompts us to sit up and take notice, no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter what aspect of human endeavor in which we labor. Where are the peaks of human creativity, impact, and relevance to be found? How are they to be measured? To study King's life, we're prompted to study our own. Over winter break, I read by way of Malcolm Gladwell's newest book on Paul Simon, a book by David Galenson called Old Masters and Young Geniuses, The Two Life Cycles of Artistic Creativity. The book asks the question of when do people do their greatest work? Galenson is an economist at my alma mater, the University of Chicago, and he tracks the relationship between the age of artists and their creative peak, measured by way of the auction prices of their paintings, the frequency in which they're exhibited in museums, or in the case of poets, the number of anthologies in which their work is referenced. The metrics may differ based on the craft at hand, a painter, a sculptor, an author, a poet, a musician, and otherwise, but the question is the same. When do people peak in their life work? To make a long story short, as the book title signals, Galenson divides the world into two groups, old masters and young geniuses. The former category, the old masters, is filled with people like Cezanne, who did his best work after 65, Dostoevsky, who wrote Brothers Karamazov at 59, John Ford, Howard Hawk, Alfred Hitchcock, whose best films were done in their 50s and 60s, Ray Kroc, who never actually knew about McDonald's until he was 52, or Frank Lloyd Wright, who designed Falling Water at 65. The other category, the young geniuses, are folks like Einstein, who publishes four revolutionary papers in his mid-20s. My predecessor, Milton Steinberg, who published As a Driven Leaf at 26. Picasso, whose age-price profile drops precipitously after the age of 40. Or Orson Welles, who directed Citizen Kane at 26. Reading the list of young geniuses, I'm reminded of Tom Lear's opening quip to a song, When Mozart Was My Age, He Had Been Dead for Two Years. Some peak early, some late. A fascinating book suggesting a framework for understanding how creativity functions in the lives of great masters. The thesis is a provocative one, one that prompts a lot of introspection for many of us, or at the very least, and speaking personally, middle-aged Jewish men. Please, God, we should all be blessed with length of years. But where are our best years? The ones that are filled with creativity, productivity, and relevance, are they ahead of us, or are they behind? If ahead... How will we know and how will we make it so? And if they're behind, who is to say? And then what do we do about it now? For all the insight of the book, there's much worthy of consideration in it. I find myself troubled, though, by its shortcomings. First of all, to suggest a correlation between an artist's creativity and whether it's displayed in a museum fetches a high price at auction or is included in an anthology strikes me as a form of pseudoscience. Posthumous judgments of value in the court of public opinion 
have very little to do with whether the artist in question believes that that work reflects their best. To use a contemporary metric, there's no reason to believe that just because a certain song by a certain musician is downloaded on Spotify more than others, that that song reflects that musician's estimation of their creative peak. Besides, who gets to decide what peak creativity is and isn't? These judgments are so subjective. One rabbi may like Springsteen's early years. Another rabbi, his later stuff. Never mind what Springsteen himself thinks. Moreover, drawing too tight a correlation between impact and age fails to account for the contextual forces that give rise to individual achievement. Would King have been King if he had lived 10 years earlier or later? How much of the success of any person is due to the person and how much can be attributed to the time in which they lived? I'm always struck by the thought of the countless mute and glorious Miltons who, due to context or circumstance, were never given the opportunity to give voice to their talents early or late. And finally, as Galenson himself notes, many people do not fit neatly into one category or another. T.S. Eliot wrote the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock at 23 as a grad student, but didn't publish what people believe to be his greatest work, The Wasteland, until years later. Philip Roth burst onto the literary scene with Goodbye Columbus and Portnoy's Complaint in the late 50s and 60s. He was thought to be a washed-out person in the 70s, but then went on to have the most prolific second act of 20th century American literature. Likewise, Yeats, Pound, and for that matter, Springsteen, Paul Simon, and Taylor Swift, a musical prodigy who, 16 years after her first album, seems to not be showing any sign of letting up. Thought-provoking, as Galenson's thesis may be on a descriptive level, as a heuristic to make sense of the cycles of human creativity, prescriptively, Galenson's thesis runs contrary to all we know about leading a purposeful life. The very suggestion that there are windows set aside for achievement smacks of a top-down determinism that abdicates our role in taking agency for the terms of our existence. As if we are meant to say, oh, I've written my poems, I've raised my kids, I've led my committees, I've did this, that, or the other, my glory days are now behind me, and now left dispirited and dangling, set adrift to watch my hairline recede, my metabolism slow, and my pillbox grow. Galenson's thesis is problematic because it betrays a rather unidimensional definition of value, which you and I both know gives short thrift to the varieties of human creativity. If a journalist chooses to retire from journalism and teach the next generation of journalists, are they less productive or more productive? If a parent decides, one parent decides to go back to work once the kids have left the home, and another leaves work in order to raise kids, who's the more productive one? If a person has spent the last decades of their life working, but spends the next decades giving back to the community, which chapter will be remembered more? If a grandparent leverages the wisdom accumulated in their lifetime towards enriching the lives of others, shall we not consider those years more, not less valuable? 
creativity, productivity, relevance, impact, and meaning in life are not reserved for one chapter or another. Meaning in life is situated on the belief that every age and every stage brings with it new opportunities and new expressions of vitality. Expressions different than the ones before and different than the ones still yet to come. Today's Torah reading teaches us many things, but at its core, it's a story that teaches us that who we are today need not be who we are tomorrow. Yes, Moses had to stand before Pharaoh, bring plagues and split the sea, but the real miracle was Moses convincing the Israelites that there was an unrealized future awaiting them beyond the horizon of their vision. The enslavement of the Israelites was not just a physical one living under the thumb of Pharaoh's oppression. It was spiritual as well. The only reality the Israelites believed possible was the one into which they were born. They had no concept that they could take agency in shaping their destiny. It's a drama that comes to a head at the pivotal moment of today's Torah reading, the people standing on the shoreline with the sea in front of them and the rapidly approaching sound of ferrets, chariots behind them. They cry out to Moses, wanting to turn back, wishing they had never left. Moses, in turn, cries out to God, who in one of my favorite exchanges of the entire Torah replies, Matitzak Eli, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, and they do. And the water split, and the Israelites stride toward freedom, leaving one chapter behind and entering a new one. Our story, we know, is not done. Again and again and again and again, the Israelites need to be convinced that there is yet another chapter ahead, different than the old one, and that complaining or turning back is not an option. The Israelites may have stood at the sea just once, but the courage and fortitude of spirit that they had to muster in order to stride toward freedom, that was a quality they had to find time and again. And it's a quality that each one of us, in our own day, in our own way, need to find as well. That's the calling of this Shabbat Shirah. Because like it or not, each one of us, one way or the other, is standing on the banks of the sea. It could be a change in age, professional status, health, relationship. It could be anything. We cry out not knowing what to do. A combination of fear and inertia. It's a human thing to do. There are so many unknowns ahead. The past has its comforts and the future comes with no promises. For some, the change could be dramatic in geography, in vocation, in relationship status. For some, it's a daring possibility that we can reinvent ourselves in our present station, job, marriage, or otherwise finding passion, creativity, and purpose in a familiar structure. I'm reminded of the famed psychotherapist Esther Perel's comment that most people are going to have two or three marriages or committed relationships in their adult life. Some of us will have them with the same person. Remember, the liberation of the Israelites was not just of body. It was of spirit, an attitudinal revolution a stride toward freedom that can be had without ever leaving home. A few years ago, I finally made the pilgrimage to Montgomery and paid a visit to King's Home, now a museum where he first served as minister of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Rosa Parks had just refused to move her seat, the bus boycott had begun, and King, the appointed leader of the boycott, was subjected to an onslaught of death threats against himself and his family. 
I wanted to see the kitchen table as described by King, where on that cold January evening, King sat by himself, exhausted and scared, coffee cup at his side, ready to give it all up. Head in hands, King bowed over the table and prayed to God. It seemed, King later wrote, as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, King explained, my fear began to go, my uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. It was a pivotal moment in King's life, his step forward that gave rise to so many others doing so, and history would never be the same. No different than our predecessors, we stand at the shores of the sea. There are no promises. We may never get to the promised land, and human though the desire may be, going backward is not an option. We must, we must listen to that small voice from God and from within, setting our fear aside and taking our stride toward freedom, closing one chapter and opening another, the most creative, productive, relevant, and vital pages of our lives about to be written. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.